Hey, this is Ed. Real quick, before we get started, I want to thank some of our recent podcast supporters. Carrie Anderson, Chip Parker, Kevin Mursky, Juanita Vero, Patrick Creedon, Haley Nord, and Kiko Moody. Thank you guys so much. I really, really appreciate the support. As you all know, the podcast is free, always will be free. But if you're so inclined and would like to support the podcast, go to mountainandprey.com slash support. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast. Normally on this podcast, I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. Ranchers, writers, athletes, authors, adventurers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, pretty much anyone who's interesting and who's doing important work here in the West. But this episode's a little different. This time, the tables are turned, and I'm in the hot seat, being interviewed on the local Colorado Springs podcast called The Little London Show. A few months back, Little London Show hosts Jeff and Darcy asked me to join them on their show to chat about my new role as conservation director at Palmer Land Trust here in Colorado Springs. We also talked about our family's move from Boulder to Colorado Springs and some of the lessons I've learned from hosting the Mountain and Prairie podcast. I thought it was a fun conversation. We talked about a wide variety of interesting topics, including public lands, Theodore Roosevelt, of course, my favorite books, my journey from selling ranches into full-time conservation, and much more. And just to be clear, I don't think I'm an innovator of the American West, nor do I particularly enjoy listening to my own voice, but we cover some good topics in this conversation that I thought may be of interest to you guys. As usual, there are links to everything we discuss in the episode notes, so be sure to visit the website to check out all those resources. And if you have a few moments, let me know if you enjoy this format of me answering a few questions from time to time. If you do, then every so often, maybe I'll plan on releasing episodes from other podcasts where I'm the interviewee, or possibly answering questions from you guys if that would be of interest. But no matter what, we'll be back to normal interviews with real innovators next week, so be on the lookout for that. Again, thanks so much for your support and for listening. So we have a special guest here today. We have a special guest. A new resident to Colorado Springs. Kind of. Sort of. Um, who is now employed with a prestigious nonprofit, are we mm-hmm. not mentioning, within yeah, Colorado Springs? I don't know. We'll, th- we'll ask him. All right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's here. We don't have to guess. That's we true. just ask him. So, Ed Roberson, hello. Hello. How's it Welcome. going? Welcome. Yeah. Glad also, fellow podcast host. That's right. A very successful podcast. We'll talk about that, too. Yeah. I would have never thought I'd have a podcast. Really? No. Oh, you do such a good job. You do do a good job. There's like a whole monologue at the beginning of the podcast. I love lead it. You in. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's like just this... it's what I write for the website, and then I just read it. And it probably takes me like ten times to read it without stuttering over myself. So. Well, well, let's just start at the podcast. Tell everyone your podcast. Yeah, it's called it's called the uh, Mountain and Prairie Podcast. Okay. And I think it's about two years old now, mm-hmm. um, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, I just, I started it a few years ago just cause in my old job, I was in the ranch brokerage business Okay, and I would, um, spend so much time driving all over the West. And so mm-hmm. podcasts were the thing that kind of helped me get through that mm. and, and enjoy it. And I, I remember listening to all these podcasts and thinking, man, I, I bet I could do that. And through my work and hobbies, um, just kind of here in the West, I meet so many interesting people. And so I had interesting people to talk to and, um, just thought it would be something kind of cool to do. And then kind of as a, a side motivation, I thought it would be good, um, kind of someone somewhat non shameless advertising for my <laughs> ranch brokerage work. Um, and so I just decided to give it a shot and just called up some of these interesting people I knew from ranch world, from the conservation world, hmm. from athletics, and just said, Hey, you want to come in here for an hour and let me ask you some questions. And, um, it's just, it, I had really had no expectations, um, that it would be anything great, but, and I don't know if it is, but people seem to, it seem is to great. like it. So it's, it's really fun. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really, really like it. And it's kind of taken on a life of its own and, um, I, I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I've met so many cool people and, um, people, people seem to like it. And I, I, um, you know, I, I like when people like, for example, say what books they like, mm-hmm. I have links to all that on the website. Mm-hmm. So the website is kind of like, a resource for all these cool, interesting things that mm. people who are doing fun stuff in the West. I am. Um, so I have a Goodreads account 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, keep track of the books I hear about that I want to read in the future. Oh, nice, so nice. as soon as I get on there, I can go ahead and grab, you know, what that next book is or whatever. And in the middle of a reading challenge this year, like set number of books yep. I want to try and get through for the year. And you published a list of like that you asked listeners to contribute to a specific topic. And yep. it was farming. Farming, yeah. And was like, what are your favorite books on farming? And you published this list. And I just went through my Goodreads and was like, add, 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 add. Yeah. Like they all looked absolutely wonderful like really really good recommendations I, things i would never i'd never heard of. i never even heard of them and i mean i read a lot and i feel like i know most of the the authors that i should have read i haven't read most of them but those were all new books mm-hmm. and i need to actually update it because i got so much feedback on social media and emails and stuff of other titles so mm-hmm. i need to need to update that um, but yeah it's cool people people like it and it's fun and um you know it's kind of rewarding i get all these nice messages from people who listen mm-hmm. to it which is crazy but yeah very cool. I like it. So who are your, a lot of it is focused on the American West, yep. I guess is kind of the genre. Who are your, who have been some of the more interesting guests that you've had on that, that surprised you? Yeah, I'll tell you, and I'm not, I'm not just saying this. I've yet to have a dud. On <laughs> and I've kind of been waiting. It's, it's a hard game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I don't know what you do when you get the dud. I think you do a lot of pre-screening. Yeah. We yeah. learned, we had to learn our way. Yeah. yeah. Luckily I haven't, I mean, I, I, my time is due for, but, but over, I mean, everybody has been so cool and they're so, they're so interesting in different, different ways. Sorry. And, uh, sorry. And, um, you know, I, uh, the, the, one of the most interesting ones I've, I've had is the most recent one I put up with the author, David Gessner. Yes. Um, he wrote, a bunch of books that have meant a lot to me and have kind of influenced my thinking on conservation in the West. And the one he's most well known for is called all the wild that remains. And it's a double biography of uh, Wallace Stegner and Edward Abbey. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. He's kind of like been this hero of mine and he came on the podcast and I went, I met him and we, we hung out for several hours and recorded the podcast and he was just as cool or cooler than I had hoped, um, which is, which was refreshing, but that was just a really fun one. And, um, but like, you know, Jeff, for your running, I, I had Joe Grant on who just... Oh, uh, you did? Yeah. Oh, and he's a he's a really well-known ultra runner who's just a, a really interesting guy who has a, a unique approach to the sport of ultra running. And just last week or two weeks ago, he did the Nolan's 14 line mm. in the Swatch range, um, completely self-supported. And uh, he, he was just a, you know, very down-to-earth, not at all arrogant um and and a lot of depth to him it was almost like the running is the least interesting thing about the guy <laughs> you know what i mean and, and i think a lot of the you know press that guy gets is because he's a great runner mm-hmm. but something about him just seemed like there was more to it than that and, mm-hmm. and there there definitely was and um i don't know it's just it's really all of them have been great in different ways yeah yeah i listened to a few of the shows and i did the um you had everyone read Gestner's All the Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a little book club. That one part of the book club that you do with Mm -hmm. the podcast. And so I read it and like it was so good. It also gave me another list of things I need to go through and read because how often he references this or references that. I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, he's he's a cool guy. He was was actually small world. He was he's a creative writing professor back in North Carolina. And he was the professor of one of my best friends. Um, back in the early 2000s. Hmm. And so I'd, I'd been hearing about him for years before mm-hmm. I even read any of his books. And, um, but yeah, he, his next book is about Theodore Roosevelt oh. and the public lands, oh, wow. um, the public lands debacle that's going on. So mm-hmm. that's going to be really interesting because I'm like weirdly obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Like my, my wife thinks there's a problem. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> this has gone too far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my daughter asked for TR stories because I tell her stories uh... about TR. But, uh, but, yeah, so I, that's kind of my dream come true is a book by Gessner about TR and public lands. Right. So that's going to be cool. That'll be cool. Yeah. The uh, We posted this on the shorty, but the uh, Bundyville podcast series, have you listened yeah. to that? I have not, but I keep hearing that it's awesome. It is a very it is very good, but it's a good insight into the public lands debate. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's, yeah, this push and pull between these people that want states to control more land. Yep. Um, versus the federal kind of monopoly on the Western land. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating kind of insight into that very topic about what does it mean to conserve? What does it mean to protect land? 
who has the right to do that? Yeah, you can come at it from so many different angles, and it can kind of be overwhelming, I feel like. But, you know, back to TR, I've, I've, I wrote an article for um, a website called Modern Huntsman mm. and um, about how if you want to understand the public lands debate, you, know, you can come at it any way you want. But the best way i found is focus on TR, you mm-hmm. know, read, read the TR biographies, because the time when he was, you know, before president to after president was the the same time that the, the National Forest Service was founded and mm-hmm. all these big things that, that the Antiquities Act that, that we're still dealing with today. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, rather than just read a history book about the Antiquities Act, which would put you to sleep, mm-hmm. you can read about the life of TR and it introduces you to these topics. And um, so, I've, yeah, I've, I think that's um, that whole public lands thing is super interesting and complicated. I just got uh, I did a road trip and so I downloaded an audiobook to drive back to um and it was The Big Burn. And, oh yeah. yeah. That was also the book club. Yeah. So I um just got done listening to that over this last week and it was really interesting to look at US Forest Service mm-hmm. and the creation and the debate that was even happening in the 1900s, early 1900s about yep. that. Um, just like what you're talking about and then have that inform the conversation we're having today, what the arguments still are from people and what that looks like. Well, it's not much different now it's not than it different. was then. Yeah. I mean, and I think it very well could have been, it was more of a threat then, you know, but it's the same thing. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there was a small group of corporate interests trying to mm-hmm. take these public lands and use them, you know, extract value out of mm-hmm. them, either mm-hmm. timber mining or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's the exact same thing that's happening now. And yeah. so in some ways it's, it's refreshing. It makes me feel better that like, all right, we've been through this before. Oh, really? It made uh, me feel worse. Really? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's like you haven't list- evolved. Yeah. Well, to yeah. be listening so, yeah, to, progressed, yeah. here's the argument, you know, so the big burn is about like the largest wildfire in all of the United States, mm-hmm. 1910. And it's the U.S. Forest Service had just been created and they were kind of created and charged with helping with this wildfire stuff that no one really knew um, how to deal with. And so this massive fire hits and all of the article or all of the people that they talk about and that they profile, there's a lot of them that say exactly the same thing. Like, the, we need to use the land for timber. We should be mining. You know, we should be taking and making money out of everything to the point where there's an argument that if you don't want forest fires, cut down all the trees mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So and that was the lumber side of everything saying, let's right. cut down all the trees and sell the trees and you don't have to deal with forest fires anymore. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, like it's been a hundred and something years. <laughs> We're still talking still. about the same argument right. on what you do with your natural resources and what the approach should be. Yeah. Well, I think it's an example of there's always going to be that pressure from from both sides. You know, I mean, on the other side, there are people that think there should be no human should ever go on these mm-hmm. on these lands. Right. And so that's that's one extreme. And then the other extreme is tear it all down and right. rip the tops off of the mountains. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's sloppy and it's un you know, it's uncomfortable. But that debate, I think, is what makes it work mm-hmm. um, in the end. And having the extremes, that's why find I, yourself in I, the middle more often. Yeah, I mean, I. I, I used not to have much patience for the extremes, um, <laughs> but I think they, they do serve a purpose. Mm. Um, unfortunately, they're a lot of times they're the loudest and they don't represent the like middle 80%, I'd say maybe mm-hmm. 10% mm-hmm. on each, on each side. Right. But um, yeah, we're definitely, I think history, reading history for me, it makes me feel better about these insane times we're in now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with your, you know, you're talking about your podcast and you've been able to interview all these different people yep. who probably have a vast array of perspectives mm-hmm. on the American West, anything from conservation, ranching, how we use our land, what that looks like. What are the, some of the things that you just feel like you've, you know, learned have been crystallized about the way we look at the American West? Well, the idea I had when I started it was that I deal with, I'm in this weird position because i'm from north carolina as you can probably tell from my accent or you can mm-hmm. tell i'm not from here and um i thought that was like a fort collins accent. <laughs> <laughs> you're clearly from greeley yeah, <laughs> it's definitely greeley <laughs> but so I, I operated in this world of of you know hardcore multi-generational ranchers and then the, the conservation world which can be everybody from ranchers to east coast people that went to yale school of forestry or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you know i also operated i love the the mountain sports and so i operated kind of in that world and uh, just if you think about all these different circles i ran in and then like the old venn diagram from, mm-hmm. from middle school or whatever mm-hmm. and then there's this spot where they all overlap and i felt like that's where i was and i i could see you know the west in general there's so many it's kind of got a reputation of being adversarial and people fighting and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But what I saw is that there are all these people that have so much in common and a lot of times they couldn't see it. Mm. Like you would see things like, like 
ranchers and environmentalists don't like each other. But the reality is they have a lot more in common than they do not in common. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I found that if it's not like I had some real grand mission when I started the podcast, but I, I saw that there was this overlap of positive things where everybody that everybody had in common. And one of them is public lands. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's come up time and time again. Everybody from the professional athletes who, you know, like Nolan's 14, that that line in the Swatch, that's all public land. And, um, you know, everybody from them to the ranchers that graze their cattle on public land. And so I think this um, kind of a respect and reverence for the land is a thing that, that comes through over and over and hmm. over again. Another one that comes through with the only a few exceptions is everybody I've had on there reads a lot. Hmm. And, and reading has been a big part of the way that they've kind of solidified their ideas on things about the West. Um, there have been a few people who it doesn't seem like they're obsessed with it, but they obviously do read some books. And so that's been pretty cool because these the same books will come up time and time again in groups that you wouldn't think mm-hmm. were related. Um, and and I think it, it all that what I'm talking about overlaps well with this public lands debate because I think what this public lands debate has done is it's forced all these groups that have been at odds with each other, like environment, environmentalists and ranchers, to have to put all that stuff aside mm-hmm. and focus on what is what they have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, who would have ever thought you'd have rifle elk hunters on the same, on the same page as people from the Audubon society. Mm-hmm. Right. But they are cause yeah. they realize they have to be. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's made me feel like, like I said, the history makes me feel better. The, um, the podcast has made me more optimistic as well. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. I like it. It's a nice side effect. It really, Oh, oh there's the dog again. <laughs> I'm going to buy ravioli and muzzle. Can we muzzle? No, absolutely not. Like an hour? Absolutely An hour not. of muzzling? No. Um, <laughs> so, Ed, how did you end up from, and we'll probably continue this after the break, North Carolina to Colorado Springs? Yeah, kind of a long, a long route. Um, so I was in, I was born and raised in North Carolina, grew up there, um, went to school there, started my career there right out, right out of um, college. And I always had this, this idea in my head that I wanted to be in the West. And that was, you know, no matter what, it was always coming back to, I want to be in the West, I want to be in the West. But at age 22, I think I took myself too seriously just to go be a ski bomb like I should have been. Yeah. And um, so I went to work <laughs> at, uh, you know, wearing a suit and doing all that kind of stuff. But it, the nagging just continued and continued, right. continued. And so finally, I was working in commercial real estate in Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. And I was really just ready to to, to bail and come out West and do anything. Um, but, I luckily I found a job, um, found out about this industry ranch brokerage selling ranches and I'd been in the real estate business for a while. So I, I figured, you know, that I, I bet I could do that. And so I started hassling all these companies out West and, um, eventually one of them hired me and I moved to Jackson hole. And what company hired you to Jackson Hole? Can you it was a group called Livewater Properties, okay. and they're based out of based out of Jackson Hole. At the time, they were only in Jackson Hole. Now they're kind of all over. Um, so I was there for a few years. It was during the real estate boom, so mm-hmm. it was great. Um, decided I wanted to go to grad school. Um, at the time, I wanted to be a real estate developer, which is the exact opposite of what I'm doing <laughs> now. I mean, it couldn't be more different. But um, I thought, you know, I, I, I saw all the really all the money those guys were making. I was like, I. I for every dollar I'm making, they're making a hundred. I want to do that. So I went to business school, got my MBA. And as I was getting my MBA, the whole economy fell apart. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually had some, a health scare that, um, kind of woke me up to, it almost gave me a midlife crisis at age 30. And mm-hmm. then the health scare combined with seeing how a lot of the, um, economy and that real estate development was based on nothing. And it was just kind of a show and, uh, made me reconsider all that. And that's where kind of my, my, conservation ethic kind of started. Mm. Um, and so after grad school, my wife and I actually lived in Costa Rica for a year, which was awesome. And I've got unbelievable, hilarious stories from that. <laughs> um, but then we decided to move back to Colorado, landed in Boulder. We were there for seven years and then just moved to the Springs uh, almost exactly a year ago. Mm. Nice. Yeah. All right. We're going to take our first quick break where the Little London Show will be right back. And we're back with the Little London Show. I'm Jeff. And I'm Darcy. And we're here with Ed Roberson. Uh, new Colorado Springs resident, conservationist, environmentalist. Are you an environmentalist? Does that count? Podcaster? Yeah, I guess I'm an environmentalist. 
I'd say more conservationist than environmentalist, but I definitely want the environment to be in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> so have, we, we always ask this of people that have moved from other towns into Colorado Springs. How do you, how is the transition going from Boulder, Colorado to Colorado Springs? I love it. And I love it more and more every day. Um, obviously I wouldn't have moved here if I didn't think I would love it more than Boulder. Um, but my wife lived here for two years right out of college. Mm. And so we had a lot of friends here and we'd always come down here and visit. And, um, she actually got a new job in Boulder that allowed her to work remotely. And so we started considering, we could really live anywhere. So we started look thinking about places to live. And then we were down here in Colorado Springs. We're like, this, this could be pretty cool. And we just hadn't really considered it all that much, but then we started looking seriously at houses and next thing you know, we found a house that we liked and we were, we were here. Um, but, but I love it. I mean, it, the, the trails, the whole reason I live out here is for the, for the outdoor stuff. Hmm. And, you know, Denver has this reputation among people not in Colorado is, Hey, let's move to Denver and live in the mountains. But <laughs> you know, you're an hour from a trailhead in Denver yeah. and here you're minutes. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, before my second daughter was born, I was training for a race, um, in, uh, in February and so I, I trained throughout the winter and I was able to, you know, train every weekend. There's a little bit of snow here and there, but I mean, get just as much mileage, just as much vertical as anything in Boulder. And there's nobody on the trails mm-hmm. and you can mountain bike the trails if you want. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's great. And just the community's great. The people, the people are great. It's a more not to track, you know, jump on Boulder or anything, but Boulder's not the real world. Um, there's no, there's no socioeconomic diversity there. Mm. Everybody, I mean, you just, it, you can't live there mm. unless you're, you're making a ton of money and everybody there has multiple advanced degrees and all that. And, you know, I grew up in a small town where there was a lot of socioeconomic diversity mm. and, um, that's important for me as I, you know, raising my two daughters, I want them to understand kind of what the real world is. And, and so Colorado Springs is definitely, um, the real world in that aspect, which is great. But, you know, I, I just, I love it. I th- it. It gets better every day. The more I discover new trails and Jeff told me about a new trail last week that I need, I might go check out tomorrow. So Rosa. Yeah. Yeah. It's a that's, good one. It's going to be a mess. I'm so out of shape. It's a good loop. <laughs> Bring a lot of water. There's not a lot of water up high right now. Okay. Yeah. It's a little dry. So with this, with the transition to Colorado Springs, you are leaving your prior employment. Mm-hmm. You're entering into a new, basically a new field. Yep. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So on Monday, I don't know when this is coming out, but on, uh, he's already, he's already started work. Yeah. I've already started work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the I future. Am, we're in the future. In the future. I, uh, so I was in the ranch brokerage business. Um, and I, I focused a lot of my energy on conservation, uh, you know, doing conservation transactions, whether working with municipalities or conservation groups or whatever to, to ensure that some of these ranches that were for sale were conserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I moved to the Springs, I was asked to be on the board at Palmer Land Trust. And um, so I joined the board and in talking with you know the board and the executive director, um, a lot of there was this discussion about this new position that they were considering um, that would be conservation transactions, conservation finance, um, just a a really unique kind of interesting position working on real cutting edge conservation things. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, man, that would be, that would be really interesting. And I would love to do that. And so the conversations continued and, and next thing you know, I was hired. And, um, and so I'm, I'm starting up and, um, you know, I did a lot of, at the end of the day, a lot of conservation transactions are real estate transactions. Mm-hmm. And so I've got that background. And then yeah, my MBA was a concentration in finance. And and so I've got that finance background. And so it's it's just a matter of kind of plugging it all together with this passion I have of conservation. And luckily the the team at Palmer is just unbelievable and they're all extremely experienced. And so the gaps that I don't have, you know, they're going to be able to teach me. Um, but the idea of getting to do this thing that I'm passionate about all day, every day is, uh, is super exciting. I, I, I don't think it's fully hit me yet. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about, um, how brokering, like being a ranch broker. Mm-hmm. So I, I would, is it analogous to being like a real estate broker? It is. It's okay. almost just as far as a comparison, it's, it's the same as somebody who sells houses, okay. but you're just selling these ranches. So how does, um, how do things like conservation easements or land protection come into the, to the mix with those types of transactions? Yeah. Um, a lot of times, like on the most basic level, there'll be ranches for sale 
that have conservation easements on them. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, that's how I was initially introduced to the idea of, of conservation easements. Mm-hmm. And then as I got more into it and then kind of got more and more deeper in the conservation community of Colorado, um, I started working with different organizations to help them sell their ranches mm-hmm. that like, for example, there's a group called Western rivers conservancy and I worked with them. They, what they do is they go in and buy ranches to conserve the, the water features. And then once they get that done, they try to resell it. Okay. And so the guy that, that runs that in Colorado, I knew for my conservation work and he hired me and the group that I used to work with Mer ranch group, we kind of specialized in, um, in, conservation type uh, transactions mm-hmm. like Murr ranch group sold the Jay Canyon ranch to um, the nature conservancy. And we we've done a, a good number of those types of deals over the years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's, it just comes up as part of dealing with ranches in the West. And then just because it was something I was interested in my clients and the people that I worked with um, were all kind of, con- or most of them were conservation focused. And so I just, I kind of was putting my toe in the water a little bit more and more over time and just realized, first of all, how important it is. And then second of all, that I, that I really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it's going to be a great fit. Is there a tension between, um, you know, one of the big issues in a lot of mountain towns is the housing is really very expensive because there's just no more space to build. Mm-hmm. Is there a tension or a potential tension for this emphasis on land conservation as it impacts the ability to create affordable housing? You know, in a lot of these places where we're, where we operate is so rural mm-hmm. is not an issue. Okay. Um, you know, at least in my old world of ranch brokerage, it was, you know, multi thousand acre ranches kind mm-hmm. of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so that, that was not an issue, but for example, like there was a, a transaction in um, Eagle County that, that basically cut off the, the conserve ranch was on the, the southern uh, municipal border of the town of Eagle. Mm-hmm. And so it basically shut down development. In, right. And so that, that could be the type of thing where if that conservation easement had not been put in place, that whole valley would have eventually been developed into housing for the people that live in Eagle. Right. Now that's not going to happen. And so, I mean, there is that push and pull and there is that kind of tension. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, it, it's kind of like that with everything, um, and so it's, it's trying to find that sweet spot. I think where um, it, there's no such thing as a everybody wins, but but right. trying to find that, get as close as you can. Right. Yeah, I think we talk a lot about this, the different impact of access and protection, and what that means to the overall um, experience with the outdoors, the experience of living in a city close to the outdoors. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely some interesting issues kind of intertwined all around that. Well, and there's some, some tension in the state now concerning water because mm-hmm. you have these growing cities that need access to water, mm-hmm. but the way the Colorado water law is set up is that you have to own a water, right? right. Which means they have to buy it from somewhere yep. and they're going to buy it from farms right. and ranches, which means you can't farm mm-hmm. there anymore. You can't use your water right there anymore. So how do you, you know, the, the bigger question is going to end up being, how do you balance that? Right. Whether it's development pressure, that direction direction or it's uh water you know resource natural resource pressure the other direction yeah Yeah. the west is just such a fascinating landscape for that type of you know everyone seems to want to move here but then the more impact that creates on the environment and the the resources here Mm -hmm. yeah they're finite resources and water is the number one thing and that's another thing that comes up on the podcast over and over is the lack of water and the Mm -hmm. challenges that that's gonna um you know have create for everybody Mm -hmm. um yeah, it's, it's interesting because like down we'll, we'll be doing some work down in uh, around Pueblo in the Lower Arkansas River Basin, and that area is a big agricultural area, mm-hmm. um, farming, and a lot of people don't know that, but it's some of the most fertile farmland anywhere yeah. in the Rocky Mountain West. And there's this idea, I think, at least among uh, at least among a lot of people, that the end result, the end highest and best use is development, grow, mm-hmm. get more people in here, get more jobs. Right. But if you're having to erase farmland to do that. And erase food production, is it is that the highest and best use? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I've got the answer one way or the other, but you know, you start eliminating the ability to produce food, and you follow that line of thinking out far enough, and there's no you know not enough food production in the U.S., and then you're mm-hmm. having to import food, and all of a sudden you're beholden to whoever mm-hmm. you're buying your food from, mm-hmm. and all, then it turns into a national security issue. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you see that with ranches a lot too. You want these ranches to stay in production because we need beef, mm-hmm. and um, without that you end up 
having to rely on other countries for food, which mm-hmm. is, is not great. So, I mean, it, there is no right answer. That's the thing. Anybody who says there's a right answer is they're not thinking clearly or they're not mm-hmm. thinking. I mean, they're that's sloppy thinking mm-hmm. because it's always the gray area. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a matter of kind of figuring out what is the, the greatest good for the most people and going, going with that. Well, it is, it is interesting as you get to talking to people that, you know, like, like you mentioned the Arkansas, you know, if you start up in Leadville, Salida, Buena Vista, and you follow that all the way down to the farmland, there are opportunities where the river raft guides sit down with the ranchers, sit down with the farmers, and they're all saying, how do we do this? Mm -hmm. Like, if your decision affects me Mm -hmm. down the line, and we need to know how to work together. And when you realize that, like, the connectivity is that vast. Like you might be driving four or five hours, but the decisions made four or five hours away are going to affect you on your piece of property. Like it's, it's really kind of nuts. Even in Colorado Springs, we've looked at it on a small level with something like stormwater, where what we're doing in Colorado Springs is affecting Pueblo negatively. Mm -hmm. And they're coming back and saying, what the hell guys, like pull your shit together. And we have to do that. But then it's, I mean, it can be the whole, corner of the state affected by a decision that's made. Well, the the West was founded on this idea of rugged individualism, Hmm. which is a myth. And if you look at history, (laughs) it's not, I mean, it doesn't work. Hmm. And and there's just time, there's history book after history book of all these events where this idea of rugged individualism ended up with everybody broke and starving to death. Yeah. And the only time that things have worked well is when people cooperate. Mm-hmm. And Wallace Stegner's written a lot about that. I mean, he, he would rip the idea of rugged individualism apart. And I mean, I think you can, you can kind of have that and think, you know, be proud to, to be living on your own out here and stuff. But the reality is without cooperation from other people, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't work as a species. You know, mm-hmm. the only thing us humans have going for us, we're not strong. Um, you know, it, we, we are smart and we can work together as a team mm-hmm. just from a basic biological standpoint. That's really what we have going for us. And mm-hmm. so you take out that ability to work as a team. I, I don't think we'll get all that far. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's applicable here in the West. And then you zoom out to just the, the national scene that we need to be embracing that more. I think. Yeah. It's a funny, I was uh, just talking to um, my wife about this. Actually, we were, in Vail or Frisco for the 4th of July celebrations. And it, it's such a, I feel like 4th of July celebration in the West is so much more like, yeah, America, like I'm an American and it, it it feels more individualistic than it is the celebrations on the East coast where Mm -hmm. people are like picnicking and people here are like, I'm going to blow something up. I'm (laughs) going to create a fire hazard, but it's such a, this concept of individualism or rugged individualism really flows into some very interesting like policy areas mm-hmm. i think like this this overemphasis on gun rights mm-hmm. um i think kind of drives from that this idea of this is what it is to be a man in mm-hmm. society or, or in western society i drive a big truck mm-hmm. you know i i get to dominate by my zone of of being because i'm a, a man yep it's kind of a weird and i think we're seeing it reflected in our politics right now it's this like we don't care what the community is or the, the community standards. We're just going to do what's, you know, what is the perception of being a true individual? Yeah. It, and it's funny you say that. Cause I remember when I moved to Jackson hole in 05 from, from Raleigh and I was basically, you know, the same line of work, real estate. And they're the same type types of people who do real estate, mm-hmm. no matter where you are. And there's some good people and some bad people. But I remember, um, very quickly, like a few weeks in, I noticed like I'd call some, a, a broker up in Montana or something. And, you know, in North Carolina, there's all this small talk and good manners and, right. hey, how you doing? And it was very quickly this kind of almost like it's trying to establish dominance, like, hmm. like yeah. who, who's in charge here. Hmm. And it caught me off guard. And then I realized it's almost like you just have to push back a little bit. Hmm. And then they they realize, all right, this guy, he's he can he's a tough guy or whatever. And it's just kind of this that like you said, like this manly, manly thing that that's going on. This just kind of adds a different layer or it doesn't add a layer. It's a layer stripped away from North Carolina. Everything's just raw out here. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, I don't take it. I didn't take it personally once I realized what was going on, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you kind of, it took me a while to realize that was the, the name of the game out here. Yeah. It's weird. Try buy a Nissan leaf and see how that impacts your, your day to day interaction with other that. men. Yeah. It's a crazy. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, such a funny cultural thing out here. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I haven't lived on the East Coast in a long time, Sorry. but it doesn't seem to be as much of a issue out there. So, um, we were talking about 
driving a Nissan Leaf in town. <laughs> you drive a truck, I think. Yeah, Toyota Tacoma, though, so it's not as manly as it should be. I used to have yeah. a Chevy Silverado, and um, that was before I met my wife, and I think she toned down some of that in me. And it's also saved a lot of money, which is always good. <laughs> and the, I'll tell you that this the um, Tacoma is much better, like on Forest Service roads and like going to 14ers. Mm-hmm. Silverado is just too big. It's absurd. I'm not yeah. a construction worker. Yeah. <laughs> right. Those are huge cars. Yeah. So let's uh let's circle back a little bit. You you had interviewed Joe Grant. Yep. I'm gonna bring this up because I think this is kind of a fascinating topic, especially as it applies to the West. So Joe Grant's very big ultra runner. Um he's kind of in this group of ultra runners that don't they don't really have jobs, they're all sponsored. Mm-hmm. They're they're pro athletes for uh basically. But they're very engaged with the outdoors being yep. in the outdoors adventuring in the outdoors um and it seems to be in what was the article titled? it was in the high country news it was called your stoke won't save us right and i think the concept of the article was like you being outside and instagramming about it tweeting about it facebooking about it is great but it's not going to do anything on the ground to mm-hmm. make it to conserve these lands yep was that the, the point that was of the, the gist of it okay. yeah yeah so how do you i mean as people that enjoy the outdoors Mm -hmm. you know we don't really my day-to-day does not involve stewarding the outdoors sure how do you turn my stoke into actual on the ground action yeah i think it seems simplistic but I, i do think it's true and this has come up a good bit on my podcast is in order to to care about a place and to do anything to try to protect a place you gotta love the place and so, I mean, I think the first step to any of that is to go outside and spend time in the outdoors. And it doesn't have to be some hardcore thing like running a hundred miles or something. I mean, just going for a hike. And then, I mean, that's, that's how I started. I mean, I started playing in a ditch in my neighborhood when I was a kid, um, you know, like building dams and catching frogs and stuff like that. And then it slowly morphed into all these other activities I've had. And I mean, I didn't even know what a land trust was when I moved out West. And now I'm going to work as a full-time conservationist. And that's all, it all goes back to just all my experiences in the outdoors. And, um, I don't think I would have this love of place without, well, I know I wouldn't, I know I wouldn't. And so I think, you know, these guys, the, these ultra runners, you could, you know, you could argue that they're not actually doing anything and they may not be themselves individually, but I think they're, if they're encouraging people to get out and enjoy the outdoors, I think that's worth a lot. I mean, you gotta, mm-hmm. it take years or decades for that to turn into action maybe mm-hmm. but um i think they're inspiring people to get outside and see you know see what they can do in the outdoors which i think is, is it was powerful for me and it's it's impacted every single part of my life i wrote that article for the palmer um website about it about or the celebrate land campaign about mm-hmm. my thoughts on that and um i do think that's true i mean it's a long-term thing though it's not like it's going to fix anything tomorrow but gessner wrote a lot about that in his book uh, my green manifesto about you know, you just, you got to find a place that you love and then you find out if somebody's messing with it and then you fight like hell to protect mm-hmm. it. Um, and which I think is, is powerful. And that could be anything from a town. If you live in Denver, it could be a little block of, of open space, or it could be a hundred thousand acre ranch in Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just kind of depends on where you're coming from. It's interesting to think about the, you know, the, this idea you go outside and you enjoy the outdoors, but we still sort of approach that as like, consumers right like Mm -hmm. you're there to be on the trail see the hike take your pictures do whatever and then you walk away and it's interesting the more I read and the more that I kind of dive into this how often it was just like these small groups of people that had such a big impact on things you know it's a small group of people that get together and say we want the place we live to look a certain way and to stay looking a certain way, or we want access to the outdoors at the level we have it now. And that that personal responsibility kind of drove them, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like, I don't know, I guess I had never thought of it. Even growing up in Colorado Springs, I remember, I remember having conversations with my family about how disappointed we were as areas got developed as more yep. houses got built. You know, the way, the place my mom grew up riding horses is now union and Austin bluffs, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, I remember talking about it and never knowing that 
there was a small group of people who were like getting together to go out and say, we don't want this to keep happening. There's things we need to protect. And they made a big impact in that. Um, that personal responsibility is an interesting thing to try and and realize and then teach. Like, how do you teach that to people? What do you, if you don't know that a land trust is a thing, like what do you do if you know that something should be protected? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's that taking leadership and, and this idea of, yeah, I think a lot of times people think, well, somebody will, somebody will fix that or somebody will take care of that. But what I've learned is that, you know, there's so many different forces competing for these resources mm-hmm. and you gotta, you gotta do something about it. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't just sit there and, and hope or, or I, I think, I don't think there's much good comes from tweeting and, and that kind of <laughs> thing, you know, but, but at least it's something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I, you just, you gotta take action. I mean, that's what it all always comes down to. Mm-hmm. And whether that's donating to a land trust, whether it's volunteering or, you know, like me, I mean, I was, I would have never imagined that I'd be doing this job mm-hmm. and I could not be more excited about it um, because I feel like I love it and it's extremely important to me. Um, you know, personally, like selfishly, mm-hmm. it's important to me. And mm-hmm. then you can take that out. It's important to my family. It's important just to, to people who are going to be moving out here years from now. And so I think it's... Um, I don't know. There's, there's no right answer to anything. <laughs> it's all gray. Yeah, it is all gray. We're going to take one more quick break. We're the Little London Show. We'll be right back. And we're back. We're the Little London Show. I'm Jeff. And I'm Darcy. And we're here with Ed Roberson chatting open space conservation, the uselessness of ultra running. Um, <laughs> it is such a useless sport. There's uh, in Yvonne Chouinard, the guy started Patagonia. I heard him refer to mountaineering as people who are mountaineers as conquistadors of the useless yeah <laughs> yeah that's good yeah, that applies yeah. i've been uh i have to do a every year i do a triathlon with my father-in-law yeah. and brothers-in-law it's like the the family thing we do for some reason um so once a year i train for two weeks to swim uh-huh. i try to remember how to swim and then i bike and i run and bike anyway so that part's easy but every time i'm like all somebody did here was combine three things they were slow at, <laughs> call themselves a triathlete, and make it sound so much more badass than they actually yeah. are. That's all it is. It's like you're you're slow at three things, but just combine them, and then you're you're something more. You know that show Eastbound and Down, King yeah, Powers. Yeah. I remember there was somebody doing a triathlon, and then he goes, "Congratulations, you're really good at exercising." Uh, so we've talked a lot about books on this podcast in the American West. What what are some of the, what do you think, Darcy, three topics, three books? Yeah, I was kind of, you know, I feel like I'm just barely scratching the surface of even understanding anything from, you know, uh, the American West to conservation to anything like that. Yep. Understanding for myself how important it is as a Colorado Springsian, you yep. know, that like this is what I love about this community. And if we're going to get you know, 200,000 more people here in the next few years, like that there's probably some stuff that needs to be done, you know, so we continue to have the kind of access that we do. So I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. Someone like me or someone that's not sure, like what would you say are three titles that you would say, go read these three books because they'll at least start to paint a picture. They'll at least start to give you an understanding of what's going on at any scale. Yeah. Um, I kind of, I think I already mentioned this, but, um, Reading about Theodore Roosevelt is mm-hmm. is great because it gives you a base of when all this conservation movement started, and you mm-hmm. can kind of see it from the beginning. And then it's even better because you can see what one person can do mm-hmm. with unlimited energy and a positive attitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, that guy was cra- crazy and just and did so much. The presidency. Yeah, and he was president. I mean, that's the thing I always say, that the least interesting thing that guy did was be president. Like with Joe Grant with the running. I mean, the guy was the police commissioner in New York City. He was a governor in New York. Right. I mean, it's just endless. But cowboy. Um, so The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris is mm-hmm. part one of a three-part series about him. And that's it's TR from birth until he assumes the presidency, just before he is, when the president dies and he's mm-hmm. going to take over. So I think that one is great for a million. It's my favorite book of all time. Mm-hmm. I can't wow. say enough about it. And there's a link to the article I wrote on my website. If people want to look at that, um, the article I wrote about that. And then um, I think you got to learn about water um, mm-hmm. to really understand it out here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would say Wallace Stigner's Beyond the 100th Meridian, which is good. But there's another one that's really action-packed, and it's just you can you can read it in a few days. It's called the Emerald Mile, hmm. and it's the story of these guys who set a speed record going down the Grand Canyon. Oh yeah, um, but yep. 
it, that's the main story, but he hit the author hits on every issue about the West with a lot about water and a lot about how the whole water system works with the dams and the Bureau of Reclamation building these dams. And um, so it's a really easy way to read a really good book and then you get all this knowledge without even really knowing you're getting it. Mm-hmm. Rise of Theodore Roosevelt is a it's a dense book. I mean, you got to be yeah. committed to read it. But Emerald Mile is just great. And then another one that's great and it's equally dense as Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, but it's a lot easier to read. It's called Blood and Thunder by Hampton Sides, and it's the story of Kit Carson. It's basically his biography, but he's one of these guys like T.R. that if you study Kit Carson, you can really understand the settlement of the West. And it's yeah, a lot of it is uh, tough to read. You know, some of the stuff with the Native Americans, and you know, Kit Carson is hailed as his hero, and the reality is. I don't see him as all that heroic. I mean, he was obviously a tough guy and he was, he was, I mean, tough and an adventurer and all that, but he, he was an order follower and yeah. he, he followed the orders of the, of the U S government when it came to taming the West, which equals, you know, moving out native Americans, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, moving out's a nice way to put it. And, uh, and so I've, I love that one. I think that's going to be the next book club selection for, for my mountain Prairie book club. Mm-hmm. And, um, those three are just great, and they get rave reviews. Emerald Mile comes up time and time and time again on my podcast is the hmm. one that people just love because it's it's fun to read, but you learn a lot. Mm-hmm. I am currently, I'm going to um, not add it to your excellent recommendations, but it got me thinking I'm currently reading a book called um, Coming of Age at the End of Nature, and it's essays from people all over the United States who are kind of reflecting on what has changed mm-hmm. in their, whether in their lives or their families' lives, like hearing stories of how their parents grew up in nature, cool. responding to nature versus how they're able to do so. And it's interesting from a perspective point of view, like how many people are saying, wow, this is different and I'm not sure that's okay and what do we do about it? Yep. Or I didn't realize, you know, um, there's one, I'm an essay part I'm reading right now about sustainability mm-hmm. where it's like, well, I went to school for quote unquote sustainability, but as soon as I got to a property that was considered sustainable, I had to throw it all out the window. It yeah. was no longer about technology and innovation. You know, it was really on the ground. It looked a lot different. Um, so I'm just throw that in there. Hmm. Yeah, I've never heard of that one either. I don't have any. I've like veered away so far from this genre in my reading that I can't even. I've been reading a lot of um, more uh, reflections on society, mm-hmm. tribes by Sebastian Younger. That's my. That oh. is probably the most influential book I've ever read. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I've read it twice, and I've given it to probably like twelve people. It's an easy read too. It's, it's hundred and fifty pages. Yeah. Hmm. That is the most. That is a powerful everybody needs to read that Mm -hmm. we use it a lot and um we talk a a lot about it within our uh, work group actually do you um just because the principles there apply very well like those are the community aspect principles are how we approach doing business Mm -hmm. um with each other so it helps it kind of helps form and guide decisions as a group the, the whole book, the concept of the book basically is that we are in a modern society. We are the richest, the most advanced healthcare, the most advanced technology we've ever had as a human race. And we are, as a result, the loneliest, the mm-hmm. most depressed, the highest suicide rates, mm-hmm. the unhealthiest. So it, it's a look at why that could be in this movement away from tribes, mm-hmm. from a, a community aspect, how we reward people that accumulate resources where in a, a typical tribal society you would that person would be out of the tribe. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have somebody in there that's just going to accumulate all the resources for right. themselves. Yeah. They so, throw them out. Yeah. I love that book. I can't recommend it enough. It's, wow. a, it's a really good book. It will go on my list. Yeah. It's a good one. And then I'm reading, we talked about this on the break, the Anthony Bourdain kitchen confidential, mm-hmm. which makes me hungry, sad, like right? laugh all at the same time. I just, I just read it this year, mm-hmm. but I happened to read it prior to any terrible news about mm-hmm. Anthony Bourdain. And I'm, I'm really glad I did. I don't know that I could, I don't know that I could pick it up right now. Yeah. I ordered it from him. It's sitting on my shelf and I'll, I want to read it. I really admired that guy. Mm-hmm. He's just such a, such an interesting and just to seem, I mean, just such a good guy, you know, mm-hmm. and he was, he had a rough and tumble mm-hmm. life for the first half of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't watch much TV, but that his show is one of the few things that I would watch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's a tragedy. And it goes back to this tribe thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. It's, What's funny, though, is he talks about a little bit about how his kitchen staff or crew is such a family and such this like hidden group of people. And I think, 
maybe him not being within that group mm-hmm. anymore kind of affected his moods or yep. yeah yeah i could see that totally there's a for anyone that uh prefers audiobooks he reads it himself does he really if you get it on audiobook Ooh, oh really it that's was good. it was that's how that's actually how i you know read it if it counts that um counts. uh and he reads it himself which is it was very good nice cool so ed um are you a beer drinker i'm not are you a drinker at all no you don't drink I'm right not. yeah Sorry. So I'm not going to ask about your favorite bars in town. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> we, well, our three questions or whatever, we already talked about books. Yeah. Well, he doesn't drink. We usually, so. I drink, no, I drink a ask, ton of coffee. Like, we, and well, we good neighbors. Oh, just right. like, what's your favorite place to go to in town? Good like, neighbors to I go out yeah. right now. Because it's, it's right along, it's right around the corner from where I live. Mm. Oh, wow. So, um, You're close to us. Yeah. Mm. So I, I this kind of like my office where it was um, until the Palmer thing started. Mm. I'd go over there all the time it can still be your office absolutely <laughs> slam coffee yeah that's funny does that yeah the coffee scene here is really good i mean we just had brandon on from switchback mm-hmm. from i listened to that one yeah, yeah he, he's, he seems super cool yeah he's great mm-hmm. just the coffee community here is really cool mm-hmm. very tribal in mm-hmm. its approach yeah I, I got a i was going through some stuff the other day and found a card that i guess i'd picked up the disloyalty card yeah where they yeah. reward you for going to all yeah. of the ones yeah and that is a, a tribe type thing you know the yeah. building the community right that's one of the reasons I, I you know i wanted to start at palmer because it's a it's a community building organization at mm-hmm. the end of the day um you know land conservation is part of that but mm-hmm. the the community aspect is huge and it's important everywhere but especially out here in the west mm-hmm. all right we good uh, yeah thanks for coming on the yeah, show thanks for having me how, how, do people, made some sense. how do people find your podcast um website is mountainandprairie.com and uh, it's on iTunes it's everywhere if you just type in Mountain and Prairie uh, it should come up and um, yeah listen to it give me a good review on iTunes (laughs) (laughs) hey it's Ed again thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode I hope you enjoyed it before you go I've got three quick things number one if you like the podcast please do me a huge favor Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.